I'm the person saying let go. I, I said let go of the Conservative Party. Uh, let it fall, let it collapse, be without it. If you have no friends at Westminster. If you want a friend at Westminster, you'll have to do something about it. And when, that, when I put that to the test, nobody would pay any attention. Welcome to Confessions. My name's Giles Fraser, and this is the podcast where we talk to interesting and well-known guests and try and drill down into their core beliefs, trying to work out what it is that makes them tick. And with me today in the confessional is Peter Hitchens, a social commentator, a journalist for The Mail, used to be a journalist for The Express for quite a long time, and uh, all-round scourge of of liberalism and um, all things, uh, what shall I say? What, what are you a great Everything scourge Everything like you, on? really. <laughs> That's what I'm, I'm a scourge of you. It's a scourge of me. It's the anti-Fraser we have here. Um, welcome, Peter Hitchens. Peter, how this, how this works, this podcast, is um, I tend to ask you to say a little bit about your family background and the sort of values that were impregnated in the sort of household in which you grew up and and then try and get a sense of your trajectory, your intellectual trajectory from that place. So could you start to say something about that? Well, the impregnation of values is most successful when you don't notice it, I suppose. Looking back on my childhood, I don't recollect much impregnation of values at home. Uh, I probably saw some quite good examples and picked up from them. So tell me about your mum and dad. Well... Oddly enough, um, I don't really remember all that much about them because my childhood was spent, an awful lot of it was spent at boarding schools. And when we were at home, um, my father was at work and my mother was at work too. She was an early uh, wage slave mother. She went out and ran a shop. So for an awful lot of my childhood, I was either at school or I ran wild. So so the... So the family. So I'm, really, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the result of a very, very neglectful upbringing. And I think a lot of my problems. So did you go to school at some it? sort of silly early age, like I, I did? I went to um, I went to my first boarding school at seven. Same as me. Uh, before that, I'd gone to it's a dame school run by an admiral's daughter with a large parrot, which I remember very well, and. Uh, a rather good pre-prep school, uh, now dead, on the edge of Dartmoor, and then um, a cathedral choir school where I wasn't in the choir because I sing like a frog at <laughs> Chichester for a couple of years. I and see. then to another prep school back on the edge of Dartmoor uh, in for, for what must have been five pretty formative years. And during a lot of that time, as I say, when I came home, there was, which we, was usually a, a, quite often, not always, an arrival at a different place because my father having been in the Navy and then having left the Navy, uh, f- having t- to move quite frequently from, from post-Navy job to post-Navy job to a different house. Uh, and, uh, and and that was that was life. So the 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 solid secure point in in a lot of this was the was the boarding school, which remained more or less the same. Was it lonely childhood? No, I I I I didn't like the first couple of days of returning to boarding school. The hard beds, the wide open windows, the filthy food. But it was amazing how quickly you got used to it. And in fact, it was in many ways idyllic. And I I can't really look back and say that I had a hellish childhood in which I was abused. And almost everybody I know seems to have been either thrashed or um, or sexually abused. At I'm boarding, surprised boarding you weren't None of this happened to me. I'm surprised you weren't no, beaten I'm a very, bit. I'm very good at avoiding that kind of thing. <laughs> One of the things I'd learned at boarding school was what they used to call column dodging in the army, which is avoiding things I didn't want. I got very good at it. I mean, in a fairly large building with extensive grounds, it's quite easy just to vanish into the, right. In, in, right, right, right. into the background like a gorilla and not to be noticed. Right. And then, and then secondary school... Well, that was more that was more unsuccessful. I went to a minor public school called the Lees in Cambridge, where we just didn't get on with each other. It looked like a lunatic asylum. Uh, it was. It, I, I'm very affected by architecture. It was architecturally hideous, uh, late Victorian Edwardian red brick, and it was run on the most crabby lines. And this was the middle 1960s. And there we were in Cambridge, one of the most beautiful and fascinating cities in the world. And believe it or not, there was our map at the top of the steps outside the library, which showed you where you could go 
in Cambridge, except on Wednesday afternoons and Sundays, you weren't allowed to cross a line drawn on this map, and the line cut off the school from practically everything in Cambridge anybody might want to see. But again, my column-dodging instincts kicked in. I noticed that they hadn't drawn the line all the way to the what top. What was the other side of the line that they were protecting Cambridge was the other side of the line. Oh, girls, was it? No, or? Cambridge. I oh, mean, everything, he? everything oh. in it. I mean, I, there were undoubtedly girls. There were undoubtedly girls there. We just couldn't get the whole, everything that was worth seeing in Cambridge was, was on the other side of the line. And I noticed that whoever had drawn the line had failed to draw it to the top of the map, so I would get on my bicycle and ride around the top of it and break this rule. <laughs> so, uh, well, you wouldn't break the rule. Fundamental why the so that I hadn't broken it, because legalistically I hadn't crossed the line. But it was an extraordinary, there was a rule book, and we had, um, we had to write lines if we, if we transgressed. Few things more distressing to a well-regulated mind. And to see a boy who ought to know better disporting himself at improper moments was the school line. And there were various forms of this, and they were given letters of the alphabet. Misbehaviour was bad. Being late was bad. If you were, if you were late three times, you were gated. If you, if you were just bad five times, you were gated. But being late for breakfast was the absolute supreme crime. If you were late for breakfast twice in a term, you were gated. And that was the measure of things. And there was an immensely long rule book of things that you could or, could or couldn't do. And it might have worked up to the bad, I suppose, 1962 or 63. But by then, you could feel the sort of throb in the air of the approaching 60s and all the, the desire to get out and not to be told what to do and how to dress and how long your hair should be. And I just couldn't stand it. And after a couple of years, uh, we parted company. I always call it a mutual disagreement. The, the incident which I think brought it to it to a head was when I and a group of friends were caught trying to break into a government fallout shelter. <laughs> Just for fun. The, well, we most of us got away, but one of them, one of us was caught, and he blabbed. I kind of don't oh. blame him. And so the police came, and there was a great, great kerfuffle. And I think that was probably about. So were you a bit of a lad at school? Well, I don't know about that. No, I wouldn't ever say. That sounds I was a bit laddish. Small. I was small and in, in many ways fairly, I suppose, um, self-effacing. But I suppose um, I, the, there was just a temptation to break, um, to break out, and I followed it at that time. So I'm trying to... Is there a sort of political? Is well, there a sort I would of have given it. Politi- I would have, as 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 ignorant teenagers often do. I certainly gave it a political top dressing. I've been going on on CND marches. I went since the Easter '66 one, uh, which I remember quite well, and uh, had developed strong opinions based on absolutely nothing about Vietnam by about then. But these are really a cover for just being generally stroppy. And uh, and presumably having an older brother who had strong views as well. Oh, completely, had... yes. The influence was huge at that stage. Only the, 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 it was he had uh, he'd undergone the most extraordinary transformation. He came home from that same school, which he quite enjoyed. Uh, he came home after a couple of years, one Christmas, and he wasn't the person he'd been. He'd obviously come under the influence of a very charismatic teacher. He was terrifically interested in things about literature that he hadn't previously much cared about. But he had also been introduced to the joys of politics. In fact, he'd, he'd taken part as the Labour candidate in a school election in, it would have been October 64, the Harold Wilson election. And this transformation made a big impact on me because it looked quite fun. So that's the sort of that the, the lefty stuff begins at school. I mean, even in a sort of slightly dilettante well, yeah, sort yes, of way. Well, yes, it, well, it begins at it, it began with Christopher at school picking it up, bringing it home, me seeing that it was it was a route out of the of the peaceful suburban boredom which we all used to dread in those days. You know, the, the, the click of the front gate, the mown lawn, the the peace and quiet, the order, and everything else that we thought was actually terribly repressive in those days. And there was a way out the thrill of politics, and I picked it up from there. And what you describe about the suburban, that suburban sort of click of the gate and so forth, that it seems to me that you reacted against that, and then now you're one of its greatest defenders. Oh, completely, yeah. We were little children playing uh, on what we thought was in... We thought we were playing in a, in a, in a sort of Enid Blyton garden uh, where there was nothing frightening at all. And because that's how it looked. But in fact, we were playing with, uh, with grave danger. And an awful lot of people uh, fell victim to it in very many and serious ways. And I have very much reacted against that and see now the sense of a lot of the, a lot of the so-called repression that we, we submitted ourselves to. Uh, it's um, in Zweig's The World of Yesterday, he has a similar reflection on pre-1914 Vienna, how fantastically stuffy it all felt. 
But of course, given what happened in Vienna after the First World War and, uh, and, and in the subsequent years, a bit of stuffiness actually seemed quite appealing. So there's the Trotskyite period that comes next. Well, the Trotskyite period, it, 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 that is a more serious thing because by, by the time I, I'm, after I left school and went and finished my A-levels at a College of Further Education in Oxford, which was largely great fun, and there were girls, there was no, nobody bothered you outside the, uh, outside the, 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 the hours of classes. There were no compulsory sports. I used to pay people to play cricket for me. Oh, right, right, right. It cost two shillings for a whole summer afternoon, which I always thought was a great bargain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one ever noticed. Yeah, yeah. As long as somebody turned up. That's very good. And, and, and there was none of that. Nobody, nobody in, interfering with life outside the classroom. And uh, some very good teachers, actually. And only in Oxford, with no line across the map that I couldn't cross. So I had, uh, at, at that time, Oxford University was in some, the beginnings of political ferment. They were learning how to hold demonstrations. I remember seeing the first one. They, they walked almost two by two like a school crocodile. They didn't, they didn't know you were supposed to, to fill the street. And it was about, it was actually about racialism. And there was a, there was a hairdresser next to our College of Further Education. It's quite famous at the time. There was somebody accused them of, of discriminating against black customers. And it became a major cause, and people were arrested outside, and there were pickets and all the rest of it. And we had rather started it at the College of Further Education, and the university joined in. And I, so I was on the edge of all that, the 1968 ferment. And about that time, I began to think I needed to get uh, this brother more organized. And I thought that uh, the... International Socialist, which I joined in 68 at some point, I couldn't remember exactly when, uh, as a student at the College for Further Education, which I joined then, was, uh, again, a rather appealing. Like the SWP? Well, it's not. First of all, there are about 3,000 of us, mostly uh, students or academics, um, who would never have been crazy enough in 1968 to call ourselves, A, a party, and B, a workers' party. We knew we were neither. We called ourselves a tendency or even a grouplet. We didn't like the Soviet Union, and we had good reasons for not liking it, and we didn't defend it. Uh, we didn't particularly like the, you know, the repressive aspect of it, though I think that there was a Bolshevik strain which ran through it. I think we thought we were so right that if it had come to it, we would have killed people for the cause. I think that that, that was the problem that, that lies in all utopian politics. But we were more thoughtful, more literate than the others, and that's what I joined. And so that's when the, that's when the Trotskyism comes in. Though it's a shorthand, any Trotskyist can, would immediately start, so any proper Trotskyist would immediately start coming out with perfectly reasonable sectarian objections to what, what my, my claim to have been a Trotskyist even. Okay. It's, it's far, far worse than Christianity, the, the theological hair-splitting of... of what, what was it you wanted out of, out of Trotskyism? What, what was the sort of emotional driver for you in terms of what it is that you wanted well, to bring the, about? Was this, there was this feeling of, uh, as in, uh, as in the, the George Orwell once described in the, the, the spring when a shiver goes through the landscape, a feeling that there was change coming. We'd seen, uh, we'd heard the, the Pied Piper music of 1968 in May 1968 in Paris. And we, we had felt, I think, anybody of the, who, was, who was adolescent at that age, a sort of anticipatory thrill. Something was coming. We wanted to be part of it. These days it's called FOMO, isn't it? Fear of missing out. You knew something was happening here. You wanted to be in it. Uh, you wanted to be in the center of it. So that was part of it. The other thing was I'd been brought up. I, my education uh, took place really in the 1930s, technically in the 1950s, but I'd been brought up for a world that didn't exist. The history I was taught, the literature and poetry I was taught were far more like what would have been taught to a a middle-class service background child in 1935 than would most people would have expected to be taught in 1965. And this world was no longer existed. So was it a hostility to a sort of class... Oh, no, 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 no. Hostility is, 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 is the wrong thing. It was a disappointment. I had been brought up to be a Christian patriot uh, in a country where, which is obviously uh, cast these things aside. I, I, could, I could no longer believe in the things that I'd been brought up to believe in. We'd had the Profima affair. We'd had Suez. Suez had, which I just remember, Suez had knocked the stuffing out of all authority. 
They lied. They made a complete mess of it. Uh, they, they destroyed us, what remained of us standing as a country. Everyone from the, 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 the local policeman to the school teacher to, to the vicar to whoever it happened to be, they'd all lost a huge amount of authority. And the world needed to be remade. And yeah, the world. The, the, well, I needed something new to believe in. I had very strong, I'd been a very, very strongly attracted by the, by the, the beliefs that I'd been brought up in, and, but they, they were unsustainable. So I needed something else. Anybody who loses a, a worldview uh, will will feel the loss very keenly. You're, you're, are you someone who's predisposed to believe? Yes, but I think I think belief is necessary to make sense of life, to decide why to get out of bed, and to decide why to work and what to do, and how how to do everything you do. If you have no belief, it's all a, it's just one damn thing after another, isn't it? The God thing is what I really want to talk to you well, about because hey, I mean that's. Because um, I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't the. I'm god, never inhibited about that. It wasn't the god thing that knocked the Trotskyism on its head, though, was it? Oh that no! That came no, later. No, no. I just. It was. I lived in this this wonderful, dreamy uh, wonderland of of the left wing student world. Really, from 1968 to 1973. First of all, when I was living in Oxford and on the edge of the ferment there, and then for three very Marxist-Leninist years at the University of York, which was itself, a, it was as if it had been let down from space. It was an entirely new uh, set of buildings in a park on the edge of York, cut off from the rest. So we went out. I, I went, we, I, I, in my time as a Trotskyist, I spent a lot of time with dustmen, uh, with the coach builders in Scarborough, uh, with dockers, with car workers, I got it was it was like national service in a way. We were very serious about trying to appeal to the working class, though we failed completely. But we spent a lot of time talking to them, and they were surprisingly kind to us. And you know, I spent nights in in people's homes and and, and got to know with them, and went drinking with them, and ate with them, and and learnt an awful lot about my fellow countrymen, which most people of my class probably don't know. As a result, good thing. But on the other hand, York itself, as uh, as 1960s Oxford had been, was, a, as I say, a wonderland in which real life was at a distance, and then I had to earn a living. And it's such a cliche, really, I, having to start earning a living and, and live in Swindon, of all places, probably the most workful, unromantic uh, town in England, uh, was, a, was a bucket of cold fairly soapy water in the face. Uh, after, uh, as a journalist? So that, yeah, uh, that's, so how I, you, that's where I started, on the Swindon Evening Advertiser, God bless it, yeah. Going and reporting about cats yeah, up flash, trees. And... Flower shows, fires, you know, down to the police every morning, sitting in the magistrates' courts, uh, sitting in council meetings, whatever came. People complaining about rat-infested houses. I, it was uh, it, it, uh, meeting people on their own terms who I had previously uh, thought were despicable who turned out not to be. So I just found after a couple of years of that that um, that it was not, and a fair amount of reading of Arthur Kirstler, that it wasn't possible to carry on being a Marxist-Leninist, so I, I gave it up. And I didn't just drift out. I actually wrote a letter of resignation, which I very much hope MI5 still have. <laughs> I don't have a copy. You're very tidy-minded I, in terms of the... Well, it's, it's, all, it's all part of my upbringing. I, <laughs> I come from... A, no, my, 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 my father was an officer in the Royal Navy. You'd expect me to be reasonably tidy Yeah, no, I, I, I... You have to be tidy-minded when you're on a ship because there's no room to be anything else. But there's a there's a tidy minded approach to thinking, isn't there, about about um, a sort of the need for consistency. Well, I'd like it so all forth. to come out. Yes, I mean, why shouldn't I? It, it should all come out, shouldn't it? I, I I somehow fear people who want too much consistency. It's just sort of like because I feel it might get imposed on me. There, well, consistency. It's, it's, it's consistency is important in the in the in the daily um, in the daily grind of life. It seems to me, but it it doesn't necessarily extend right out into the universe. Uh, you can't always. That's part of the function of poetry, isn't it? Poetry is where is 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 where logic and 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 reason depart from our lives, but at the same time we are moved and educated by it. And we don't understand why. I just so can't. You can't be that tidy. That the, the, there's a, there's a, there's a limit. There's a coast beyond which that sort of tidiness is impossible, which we all reach sooner or later. So you're an atheist for uh, oh hugely yes. I mean, all of not this just an atheist, but, but, uh, but a jeerer at religion. Jeerer. Yeah, I very much so. Yeah. And did, well, you did you go to church in prep school and all those sorts oh, of well, things? Oh, well, in prep school we had, uh, we would have a, a, a morning assembly, which was uh, a couple of hymns, a fair amount of prayers, uh, lessons out of the Bible, which I would often be chosen to read. Uh, and there was a whopping great chapel at the, at the Lees in Cambridge. Did I read somewhere that you once burnt a Bible? I tried to. It's surprisingly difficult. 
when, when was that? <laughs> it, that would have been about um, towards the beginning of my second year at the knees. I gathered some friends and cronies around and set fire to it and on the playing field. I I, I'm, beginning to, very well. I'm beginning to form a picture of you that's completely out of whack with the way in which you describe it. I, I mean, it's sort of like... I don't know if you, you said you got expelled or not, but you said... No, no, I don't know. I'm always suspicious of people who say they got expelled. Schools don't like to expel people. and oh. it, it's, 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 it's rare that they actually did. I didn't get expelled. They would have kept me on if, they, if, if I'd wanted to stay and if my parents had wanted to keep it up. But I think we all decided it had been a pretty... Um, a pretty useless period. I don't. They sometimes write to me, and I say, "Look, I'm, I'm sure I wish this pre- pre- present day school well, and I'm I, I'm sure that uh, I've got nothing against it, and it's got nothing in common with the school that I attended. But I have no wish to return to it. I, I I didn't enjoy a single waking minute of my time there. Thanks, all the same. When did the sort of was there a conversion? Was it a slow thing about? A religion uh, oh, it's returns. Oh, slow. I and mean, all serious changes of mind are slow because you. One of the things about changing your mind about anything significant, which is why most people don't do it, is because you will lose not just friends. You'll probably lose your entire milieu if it's, if it's about anything important. People who you previously were on good terms with, who assumed yes. certain things about you, will stop doing so, and it's goodbye. And I don't know. How much? I mean, there are a lot of people who I knew at university who would probably cross the street now to avoid me. I wouldn't. I don't feel the same way about them, but they. I understand that they do feel that way about me, and so that's gone. You give the impression that that doesn't bother you. Well, it bothers me, but okay. not, but but I I would I wouldn't. It, it was it was a necessary sacrifice. Yeah. Uh, if I hadn't changed my mind, I think I would have lived a much more crabbed and uh, and unsatisfactory life, and also um, a much less interesting one. And so it's a pity, and of course it hurts, and I wouldn't pretend that it doesn't hurt, and I understand why people don't change their mind. It's not because they think, if I change my mind tomorrow, uh, I'll lose all my friends. It's because something in their half-consciousness tells them that if they go down that road, that may be the end of it, so they don't even take the first step. Once you start going there, once you start even entertaining these dissenting thoughts, then it, you know that sooner or later it's going to take you there. But you're scared to take each step because each each one has to burst through all kinds of things which you've told yourself are important and true and which you now think are important and untrue. And this, So this process that we're talking about here, this is taking place... When in the in the eighties? Well, I was um, I started work in Swindon on the Evening Advertiser in seventy three. I resigned from the International Socialists in seventy five. I joined the Daily Express in seventy seven and went to live in London and felt the lack of political engagement. Joined the Hampstead Labour Party, which I adorned. I don't think they would have thought that for um, what four or five years, and. I, I got onto the, but using Trotsky's tactics, I got onto the general management committee of Hampstead Labour Party and was actually one of those who opposed the selection of Ken Livingstone as our candidate. I used to get called to order during my own speeches for irritating the other comrades <laughs> when they heckled me. It wasn't, they weren't told off for heckling me, I was told off for provoking them. Uh, and then that eventually came to an end. I, I became a political reporter on the Daily Express and I thought, and I still do think, that you shouldn't carry a party card and be a political reporter. So it was a good pretext to abandon the Labour Party. This is roughly the time when Roy Jenkins and the Gang of Four were, were, were quitting. And I was quite sympathetic towards that. Though it was all, of, of the Gang of Four, it was David Owen I thought was the most interesting, uh, which seemed to be the reverse of what most people thought. And I suppose for the time when I was a political reporter and covering elections and working in Parliament, I was probably a, a sort of Owenite SDP are in my inner life, though I could see I had some sympathy for Mrs. Thatcher. I particularly disliked the way that the fact that she was a woman was used against her by um, by um, by MPs in Parliament. I really didn't like that at all, and I could see as I've as I would still defend now an awful lot of of courage and merit in the way in which she came up from being a shopkeeper's daughter to being prime minister. But the politics worried me. But you've never vague, been a Thatcherite, a really. You've never think, been a Thatcherite. I don't think I was ever a Thatcherite. I would have certainly... I, th- I thought she was right about the Cold War. And I still do. I mean, I don't... I thought the Soviet Union was an evil empire. And I, don't, and I think that's... And, and I, nothing will shake me from that. 
but in the domestic terms, I think it was quite hard to defend a lot of it. And uh, and, and now I, I, I very much think that the whole the whole free market frenzy which which people embraced was just a big mistake. Yeah, that's the thing that I'm really interested in because most people associate that what you call a free market frenzy with being on the right. Mm. And you articulate a completely different way of being on the right, which is re- really not in thrall to market forces. Well, it's and- not. I mean, conservatism isn't about the market. Conservative, conservatism isn't liberalism. Liberalism is the one which is all to do with free markets and free trade. Conservatism is about the, is about the preservation of what is good. It's about the particular. It's about protecting things. Uh, and protecting things, of course, one of the things you have to protect against is the ravages of the free market. One of the things I hated from my earliest youth was the tearing up of the countryside for motorways. I hate cars. I wish they'd never been invented. I think they've destroyed an awful lot of what, had, what of the civilization we used to have. And I could never square um, those you know, unshakable feelings about roads. I, know I was livid. Uh, and 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 grieved by the destruction of the railways by beaching. I couldn't see any sense in it at all. I'm, I've been quite pleased to see in the years that have come around since that more and more people have recognized that what, what I instinctively learned was actually also a terrible mistake. Uh, I couldn't ever square those feelings with uh, with the sort of Thatcherite build more more motorways and have a great car economy attitude, and that was probably the the point at which I really peeled away. And the Conservative Party is entirely split between those two different sorts of instincts. Well, it's isn't not really it? split at all. I don't think. No, I mean, it has a kind of uh, a sort of small top dressing of people who are genuine conservatives. Well, who who will espouse in public conservative opinions, but they have absolutely no impact on, on the, the, the way a conservative government works. They're just there as a kind of, um, oh, I don't know, camouflage. They don't do anything. The Conservative Party is an economically liberal, socially liberal party. And the... Um, and, and the Fig the, leaf, that's the word. I was the, the, politi- the political... The political uh, who gets to say the sorts of things that people like you and, and thousands of others want to say? Politically, I mean, where is that being said? Well, no, it's not. It's not articulated. Um, I, I think I used to think, and that there was a a ghost coalition in the country of socially conservative Labour Party supporters and socially conservative Conservative Party supporters, which might conceivably be brought into being as a real political force. If Brexiters, only, aren't they? Well, that's the problem. It's all drained away down that particular drain, uh, which seems to me almost to be... It's not... The European issue is not a marginal issue, but the way in which it was approached during the referendum was pretty marginal, and it didn't address the things about it that worried me. And I thought for many years before the 2010 election, I had tried to persuade my readers, because people would say to me, well, you you talk a good game, but you'd never do anything. I said, well, right, this is what I think you should do. You should not vote Conservative ever again. The Conservative Party needs to be destroyed. And the crucial moment when this could be done is the 2010 election. And if it loses another election again, spectacularly enough, it will collapse. People will stop giving it money. And there will then be space. I said, look, if you, you know, if, if the Conservative Party were your lawyer, you'd be in prison. If the Conservative Party were your accountant, you'd be bankrupt. Uh, if the Conservative Party were your car, it would be a smoking heap beside the road. In any other area of life, you wouldn't keep it. If it were your garden shed, you'd demolish it and put a new one up. It, it, uh, so here's an opportunity to do that. And I couldn't get anyone to listen. I remember going to a meeting of the Bruges Group. That, that, that's um, the, 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 the predecessors. They still exist, but they're sort of predecessors of the, of the Jacob Rees-Mogg tendency. Just before the 2010 election, and they invited me to speak, and I said... For goodness sake, uh, the last thing you want to do is have any illusions about David Cameron. Uh, he is not your friend. And it would be much better if he lost the election if he won. And the temperature in the room since some hotel in Manchester fell so much during that speech that I thought global cooling had, had begun. <laughs> and it was a really frosty wow. reception. They hated it. Uh, of course, I was absolutely right. And I've had quite a lot of people who were there have written to me since saying, I'm so sorry I didn't pay any attention. But too, I, I thought that was the moment. It's too late. And after that, I gave up any active engagement in politics. It was just making me unhappy. I thought, why bother making yourself unhappy trying to get change that isn't going to come? So now I just laugh. And yet the, the sorts of uh, politics with a small P that you that you describe, the the sort of conservative 
perhaps Little England in the old-fashioned sense. Well, no, the old-fashioned um, sense is to do with the Boer War, but it's that's not... What, what I mean, what I mean is, like, not sort of concerned with its... Uh, not sort of concerned with foreign interventions. There's nothing little and... about. There's nothing little about England. England is the source of of a, of a huge amount of, uh, of of global possessions in terms of examples, particularly of justice and liberty, uh, which other people have have attempted to copy, not always successfully, but even in attempting to copy, have improved the world immensely. It's not a little place. It's very important in both. Also, uh, this is this. Uh, Example in, in the presumption of innocence and habeas corpus and uh, and everything that's gone with it and Magna Carta is as important as Shakespeare and so there's nothing little about this. I, I guess what I was trying but to it's get not, at it's not those that, that, so let's not let's not use language like that. But it, what it, it, that's what's great about it. Yes, and those are the things which are which are most fundamentally important. Uh, but no, I would I will take on cause if someone wants to build a motorway near me, I'll be among those people who want to stop it happening. Uh, I, I devote a lot of energy to trying to prevent the legalization of marijuana because I think it's it's it is an achievable cause to prevent it, and it's very important. And I will continue to campaign until the day I die for the restoration of academic selection in state secondary schools because I think it would be a, a, a revolution for the better in our national life. But in terms of wider politics, I don't think that I ever want to get engaged again. I campaigned for the for the for the good name of Bishop George Bell as well because it just seemed to me to be outrageous that he could be condemned on on the basis of a of a sloppy kangaroo court in that fashion when his memory was so important. I'll do that, but it, but it, but in terms of actually trying to engage in national politics or parliamentary politics, the whole thing makes my heart sing. There is a uh, a quite a broad Peter Hitchens esque constituency in the country in terms of the values that, that you would share that are not represented at a political level. But not in practice, there isn't. I mean, there may, people will vaguely agree with me about a number of things, but it's, it's, if, you, if you reach the kind of level of minor celebrity that I have reached, uh, an awful lot of people will hate you uh, because they misunderstand what you say. And a fairly considerable number of people will like you because they too have misunderstood yes. what you said. Uh, the number of people actually paying attention to the detail of what you say, they, they, they see you as a point of, 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 of reference, either a rallying point or somebody they can enjoy hating. And the details cease at that moment to be important. And it's the details in what I say that are the things which people don't like. So when it's, it's, it's like the old, the old joke that Jack Jones used to tell about the man who fell off the side of a, of a dock in Liverpool and was hanging on by his fingertips. And he called out, is there anybody there? And a very distant, saintly voice said, I am here, my son. And the docker said, what should I do? And the voice from high above said, let go. <laughs> and the man hanging onto the... Onto the onto the dock side by his fingertips, saying, "Is there anybody else up there?" <laughs> uh, I'm the person saying, "Let go." I, I said, "Let go of the Conservative Party. Uh, let it fall. Let it collapse. Be without it. If you have no friends at Westminster. If you want a friend at Westminster, you'll have to do something about it." And when that when I put that to the test, nobody would pay any attention. People would say, "What should we do?" I said, well, "This is what you do. Well, we don't want to do that." Okay, well, don't. Well, do everybody it. wants goodbye. To be, everybody so, wants no, optimism. The, the, there so is no, no, absolutely not. Optimism is the key to misery. Yeah. Uh, there's no better way of making Shopping, it. You're a Schopenhauerian. You're, uh, you're definitely... Now, I, I, you, I'm, I'm trying to get so. you to talk about God, so I'm going to keep on... Not I'm gonna, very hard. I'm gonna, no, I'm gonna, well, I, I keep raising it up and it sort of like, it disappears. Let's you're talk the about vicar. God. You should know how to God, let's talk about God. When I first asked you, I said, you know, it's not... Is it a conversion or a long process? And you go, yes, yes, it's a long process. But there must be a point where you, where, where someone who's a Bible-burning atheist will then say to themselves, actually, I'd got this wrong. Well, there's no point. That's the whole, that's the whole difficulty. There is no point. There is a long period of years uh, during which it gradually becomes impossible to sustain the Bible-burning atheism. And at the end of it, then, uh, quite reluctantly, you, you um, go off as I did to, West, to um, Westminster Abbey and get yourself confirmed by Graham Leonard. Graham Leonard, my that's word. That's how it... My words. Well, I was in the Diocese of London at the time. Okay. Graham Leonard is a notorious cleared, conservative. Cleared off to become a Roman Catholic, yes. yes. But, I, but um, 
Uh, he had a great um, penchant for some watered silk, cardinal-like robes, I seem to remember, which wasn't really my idea of what the Church of England was like, but there it was. But that that would have been about... I'm amazed you chose about the Church of England. I'm amazed you chose the Church of England. It's full of sort of well, like... I, that's where you know. I started. I was I was baptised in the Church of England. So we're, 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 short of you know, making a great palaver, why would I have gone anywhere else? Anyway, it's appealing. I mean, one of the things about the Church of England, not the, not the hierarchy as present constituted or practically anything about its outward uh, and visible signs that it has now, but its core, uh, particularly the Book of Common Prayer, uh, is immensely attractive, it seems to me, to anybody who, who thinks about, uh, about God, because it's full of poetry. And I remember I had this, this uh, very early experience of it as a, as, a non, as a non-singing pupil at a choir school in an English cathedral. And if you experience that at an early age, it doesn't leave you. So it's the rhythms and the liturgy and those sorts of things that yeah. are well, stabilising. And... Even song every day. Yes. Yes, I mean, I've done it myself and a lot, and I love it. And I, I do think the rhythm doesn't is... doesn't leave you. No. But it's not... Even while you're out there on the demonstration brawling with the peelers, it doesn't ever entirely leave you. Yeah. And in fact, I think the language of the Psalms and of Isaiah is, very, um, is, is never very far from the language of the revolutionary either. Not to mention the Magnificat, which is more or less a revolutionary manifesto. And yet that's the one that you proclaim now, bringing down the mighty from their thrones and lifting up the lowly. Put down, does, no, does, put down the mighty from their seats, if you wouldn't mind, and exalting the humble and meek. <laughs> Let's have the proper version, shall we? <laughs> Filling the hungry with good things and sending the rich empty. Is that your politics? Well, not far from it. No. Really? I don't. I think that if if you are not if you are not concerned about the um, profound injustice of uh, of temporal life, then you have something wrong with you. I, well, I obviously but agree, a but that's of how not how you address the injustice, isn't it? I mean, there, I, my my fundamental conclusion is that there is no justice in the temporal. Justice only only exists in the eternal. So, how do you address it in the temporal? I mean. Well, you're addressing it, 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 religion is about as morals are about yourself. Morals are about your own private and personal behaviour. They're not about telling other people what to do. Uh, well, that that changes if government starts to intervene in in positive and invasive ways, uh, making laws which make it difficult to try to be good. Then I will object to that, and then my my political my political moral engagement is much more in trying to stop government preventing people from being moral uh, than anything else. I wouldn't want to try and make people moral. But doesn't the sort of so the huge assault, the huge state-backed assault, for instance, on lifelong marriage over the past fifty years, seems to me to have been a grave political mistake. But doesn't the Magnificat and all that te- the teachings of Jesus that are of a of a, of a, of a piece with that? ask you to do more than just be reactive to what the state does. Well, of course it does, yes, but it, most of it is in your personal, private life. I see. And in your behaviour towards other people. That's the, indeed, that's the your, very Protestant... your readiness to forgive or not forgive yourself for things that you've done wrong. I once heard you say that you didn't know what side you'd be on in the English Civil War. I still can't work it out. No, I, I mean, I... I, I feel you'd... for Lucius Carey, Lord Fulton, who rode into the heat of the battle in, in, at Newbury, um, had pretty much the same view. He couldn't bear it any longer. Yeah. You, you strike me as a very Protestant thinker, though. I mean, in, in terms yeah, well, of what I, you've that, just but said. it doesn't I mean, make me like... anti-Catholic. No, no, I, I understand that, but uh, but I'm trying to ask you to reflect just, on that. It's just sort of... what I am. It's part of being English, as far as I couldn't be anything else. I see, I see, I see. Because again, because of this immensely old-fashioned upbringing that I had. But on the one hand, there's this insistence. Some of my best on... teachers of particular history were Roman Catholics. Actually. On the one hand, there's this insistence on a sort of very Protestant sense of individual responsibility, yeah. which you've just said and so forth. But on the other, there is a sense of. Uh, the importance of community and, uh, well, I mean, family and things like that, those sorts of traditional values, uh, which... Well, they're virtues rather than values. They're what? They're virtues. They're things to be aimed at to try and, to try and pursue in, in your own life. They're not values. Because yeah, I always think conservatives would want to conserve... It isn't just about the individual. Well, of course they that do, That's the Thatcherism. That would be the point, wouldn't it? That you would, that's why Thatcherism wasn't conservative. No. Because it, it, it drove bulldozers through all that. I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to see the sort of like something that doesn't sit right with me about, about your thought, which is on the one hand it seems to be 
individualistic. And in one sense, it seems to me about preserving all sorts of patterns of life which are uh, to do with community and nation and tradition and so forth well, like that. that. And they that's don't a, always. Uh, my simple rationalization of that, and I can't be shifted from this because I don't think it, it is possible to argue against it, is that it, the, the, the smallest and most effective, well, no, the, so the largest, I said, the largest and most effective. Uh, society in which it is possible to be effectively unselfish as the nation state. And we're lucky enough on this island uh, to have been able to construct without interruption uh, a nation state with many, many good characteristics of, of, uh, of freedom and unselfishness, which we are currently very busy throwing away. If you read uh, the wonderful uh, Rebecca West's Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, which is a journey through the uh, th through through what was then Yugoslavia, a, a lot of she's she's very complimentary about a lot of the the, the beauty and and the the culture of the. But she says one of the problems of this area has repeatedly been invaded, and they've never been able to develop the institutions and the habits which an island nation such as ours has been able to do over a thousand years of uninterrupted liberty. And it's very, very precious to me. And but it makes it possible, as I say, to be effectively unselfish. Action, a society in which individual actions fundamentally stay within a, a, in the home is one where, where religious virtue has much less effect than one where you can actually reach out beyond your individual existence. So I think it's reasonable for someone with a, with a, with a Christian position to say, yes, I would defend the existence of this particular nation state quite strongly and indeed of as much of its lasting elements as possible. I, I, um, I've in, heard from you... the countryside to the, you know, to the Book of Common Prayer. I've I've heard you be I've heard you say um, ambivalent things about Islam, uh, insofar as well, I'm um, ambivalent about it. Yeah, I mean, insofar yeah, as I want, aren't you? I want you to. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm we're talking about you, so let's yeah, talk about okay. you. So I, I mean, only insofar as uh, you've said some very positive things about Islam and some of the ways in which you prefer some of the, uh, the way in which Islam thinks about family and community and so forth. You much prefer that to a sort of you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll, 60s well, revolution, uh, drug I don't taking. Think, I don't think that's uh, a choice being offered to us, but I think if you travel at all in the, in the Muslim world, you will find uh, that, that you're often quite moved by just simply what you see, the relations between people and, uh, and, and the way in which families work. And indeed, the, 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 the powerful embrace of, of, um, of, a, of a belief in, in the eternal, which is important. I, I've had a wonderful visit to Iran a few years ago, and I was invited into people's homes, you know, very educated middle-class people of extraordinary uh, piety, and you could not fail to be impressed by it. And I was allowed, I probably shouldn't have been, into one of the great shrines of Shia Islam, and you couldn't be unmoved by the level of devotion. I thought I was seeing here in the great shrine at Mashhad, as near as I would ever get to seeing what the shrine of St. Thomas and Beckett must have been like at Canterbury before the Reformation. We've lost something and they still have it. And I think it's just crazy to say, to dismiss the whole thing, say, because I, I disagree profoundly with their attitudes towards women, for instance, or a number of other things that I would disagree with them because they don't seem to me to have much of a, of a concept of divine grace. There are, there are faults in it. But I can have and have had many productive and enjoyable and good-natured arguments with Muslims about these things, and they don't mind. I've never found one who objected to being challenged. They'd much rather have someone interested in what they think than just be dismissed. Do you think the male is unfair on Islam generally? No, I think, well, actually, there's a, there's a, I think we have quite a few British Muslim readers, and I think we're, we're very conscious of the fact that, 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 that's, that, that is so and that they're... They're, um, they need to be respected as any other reader would be. Doesn't mean you need to couch how to things you disagree with, but you, I think you, I, I, I wouldn't. I mean, you may be able to produce example. You talk of the Mail. I work for the Mail on Sunday, which is one yes, day different. It was another, but I, I, you, if you if you want to come up with some particular thing you you you, you want to raise, I mean, no, no newspaper is perfect by any manner of means, but uh, it's. Uh, it, I take the Thomas Jefferson view. I'd rather have. Newspapers without a government, the government without newspapers, and they will, by their nature, sometimes be not wholly wonderful and lovely, but they're very necessary, and I, I defend them. Yeah, I mean, I always, I always, I'm always surprised in a way that that uh, that the male doesn't hold up um, Muslims and 
Muslim communities as sort of models of some of the values that it uh, that it actually that it aspires to of family and community. Well, I don't know. I can't really, I can't really defend it for, or defend it for what it doesn't do, or indeed attack it for what it doesn't do. I, I think that the, I think you would find in in editorial decisions taken by major newspapers in Britain today, and not just ours, a recognition that a large part of our society is now composed of people who are Muslim. And they are our fellow citizens, and we should jolly well get used to it and treat them as our brothers and sisters. I guess I'm inviting you to do something you're reluctant to do, and that's that's fine. But it's just, I just, I, I, I have a, I have a sense that in that uh, there was there was an article in the Guardian yesterday saying. Uh, Islam is threatening our way of life. And by way of life, I think they meant something that you would have disliked entirely, um, the way of life that apparently Islam is threatening, which is our sort of like our obsession with individual freedoms, uh, sort of uh, um, the whole sort of consequences of 60s liberation and all of that sort of Look, stuff. If, and- if, you want, if you want to argue uh, against Islam uh, as a social philosophy, which in many cases I do, uh, then it seems to me that you're going to have to grow up, as a lot of the Western world has tended to think, that because we have better weapons and bigger shopping malls, uh, we are superior to Islam and we can out-argue them and we, are not, we, have, we have nothing in our societies to fear from Islam. But it's not about better weapons. If, if we, our answer to Islam is that Christianity provides a... Uh, a a, a social philosophy and a means of of strengthening conscience, and without conscience, there's no freedom, in my view. Uh, that is better than Islam. We have to argue from that, but but simply arguing from the point of view of we're richer and we're stronger will never yes. work. Uh, that's the reeking tube and iron shard of Kipling's recessional. It's uh, you you put your trust in those, and you'll find that sooner or later the far called navies melt away, and then where are you? Uh, if the argument that we have against Islam is a Christian argument, if we're not prepared to make that, then Islam will probably come to dominate us. I've said it many times. It's 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 un it's intransigent. It's uncompromising. It's it's confident in its beliefs. It's not frightened of Richard Dawkins. Uh, it doesn't care if the BBC doesn't like it. It's uh, it's very simple uh, to grasp. And if eventually the the long worship of progress and prosperity comes to an end, and and the the idea that growth is is permanent and will never stop is exploded and people begin to look to religion again i think islam is very well placed in the western world to take in quite a large number of recruits unless christianity uh, reasserts itself i mean and which that, it should do i, I because as yeah, i say i think it's preferable yeah it, but i don't but i don't think it's impossible to deny the power of of, of islam and 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 the the beauty of some parts of it as well it just it would just be you'd make yourself look foolish and you wouldn't be much of an arguer against it if you didn't concede that it had some points in its favour. And then, and then you it, could and never then, argue properly uh, against an opponent unless you recognise that he has something to say. You mentioned, you mentioned money just back there as you were talking. And, just, and one of the things that I've, I've heard you say very interesting is about... It is, is a sort of very sort of nuanced approach, I suppose, to, to wealth where there's a sort of... You, you have a strong sense of it, what, what Ruskin called ilf, you know, that that that, that money can be yeah, a bad ba- thing for back people. He's back in fashion, isn't he? He's yeah. back in fashion, yes. Yeah. But that money can also be bad for people. That too much money can be bad for people. Well, money money by itself, well, I mean, that was James Carnegie's motivation for building all those libraries. He, he, think it, he thought it would just be completely wrong for a man to die uh, with so much money. Uh, having made no effort to spend it on something better, it's it's uh, people could you know you can't eat it, you choke to death on it, but you can't eat it. Um, but you have a sense it's corrupting too, unless, don't unless, you? It, it, well, it's, it's some bacon, I think. So if, if that 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 uh, that that wealth is like dung, if it's not spread out, it just stinks. Individual wealth is enough to make a man independent. Uh, and to have a good life in an honest place, who could be against it? But vast accumulations of unfair wealth while other people suffer. I mean, who can look on that? It's not just socialists who look at that and think that that, that, that can't work or last. But but it's not only just bad for society, but it's bad for 
it's bad for the individuals themselves who are wealthy. Well, I think, it, I think in many cases it, it is, though, of course, not always. I mean, there are, there are people who become who become rich and then, having become rich, um, spread their wealth about. And you, you have to be for, for good purposes, and that, that has to be a good thing. You, I'd rather have a few good, rich people than none. You're a tough person to interview. That's a very nice thing to say. <laughs> you sort of like, you do this thing the way you... If you try, I, I suppose I try and generalise too much, but I try to sort of do a generalisation. And you're always, you're always good at uh, at sort of looking for the sort of no, it's 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 not a generalisation. It's always about the specific. It's always about the particular. Your sort of your thought is well, generalise if you like. I'm sure you can get me to generalise that. Too, no, 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 no. I'm just very interested. The in less the, I know, the more I'll generalise. I'm very interested in the in the particular. I can't I can't help but help think that the uh, I, I'm sort of still struck by the click of that gate. Uh, when you talked about the well, click of the, the gate, the, when you're this is, that's this what I'm. This that's is what I'm. True, I remember it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, no, I think it's like, really powerful and important. Like I didn't like the stiffness, the the, the the stuffiness, the feeling of being of being held in, uh, of, of, of of disapproval everywhere. I thought it was a. I thought it was a, an obstacle. Now I realise it was a defence. Yeah. Uh, and and this you look, and a comfort. You, well, I don't know about a comfort. I think that you have to. We we always reluctantly hand over our liberty. You must always be reluctant to hand it over because it, you, you should you should never give away any more of it than you have to. But when you do hand it over, you should have a good reason for for doing so, uh, even if you're reluctant to do it. And I think that actually the old simple Burkean point, the more we restrain ourselves, the less we need to be restrained from outside. The key to freedom is being able to behave ourselves. And in the world of my childhood, people did behave themselves. I can't watch television series about the past now because people swear so much. And I know they didn't. They just didn't. I mean, my father would have sworn like anything on the, in, in, in his warships in the middle of whatever you know, the Russian convoys, but he would never have sworn at home in front of women, and nor would coal miners. They'd swear like anything in the thin seam, but they, when they would, took their wives out to the pub on, I think it was the, 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 the Saturday night that the wives had taken the pub, they wouldn't have dreamt of using the F word, and yet the portrayal of the past, and people use it all the time, and that's such a, a simple symbol of how much more restrained we were. And that, that sense of um, people behaving themselves and conducting themselves with a with greater sense of decorum and so forth, that has a... That actually just describes a different world now, doesn't it? It's, the world just gets more and more different as we as we as we move further away from that. I, I watched over the past few days, but it's a binge watching uh, the, the the wonderful uh, Burns PBS series on the American Civil War. And one of the astonishing things about it, and it happens twice, once on 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 both on each side, once at Fredericksburg where the Union soldiers do it, and once at Gettysburg where Pickett's Charge happens. Man who we must assume were like us physically, advance directly, unhaltingly, into powerful artillery and rifle fire and certain death for a cause. It's unbelievable to me that anybody would do this, and yet they did it, and they did, they did it unhesitatingly and in large numbers and unquestioningly, which makes me think they were different from us. They, we the, are not like them. And, and, they and, look like us a bit. And when, when we've been aren't. changed, why have we been changed? We've been changed by Thatcherism, by market forces, well, by... But it's like part of the... Because you're worth it. All that's with individualism. changed by Fredericksburg and by Gettysburg and by the Somme and by Verdun. We saw it all over the world, and people thought we're no longer prepared to do that for a belief. And something, as a result, went out of the world. Because sometimes you should do it for a belief, but most people now can't. Peter Hitchens, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing, and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Hold up. 